Welcome to episode 188, Cultural Safety and Care for Immigrant and Refugee Communities, featuring Dr. Raj Sundar. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and today I am honored to be joined by Dr. Raj Shandar. He is a family physician out of Seattle and also community organizer and podcaster. And his jam and specialization is really inviting practitioners into more awareness about cultural diversity, cultural humility, and the concept of cultural safety in the work that we do with our clients. Thank you so much for joining us, Raj. Thanks for having me, Beth. So before we dive into this very important topic, uh, why don't you take a minute and tell our listeners about yourself and how this particular topic became so important in your work? This is such a great start to this conversation because one, like what part of my identity should I focus on? Part of me wants to say, hey, Beth, we talked about our kids. I'm a dad. Right. And that's how I want to connect with you. Or you know, sometimes when I'm doc- talking to doctors, I'm like, I'm a family physician. I also do OB, a little more formal. In the US, we focus on work a lot as part of our identity. But, you know, the one part that I will focus on is I'll say I'm a Indian American, but specifically South Indian American from Tamil Nadu. But what you should know is in Tamil Nadu, I'm from a small village called Tamarankote. And I went to that level of detail because that's something special to me, more than what you think of as India, uh, as Bollywood, uh, chicken tikka masala, you name it. There's just some specificity to my Indian identity. I want to bring that to the forefront. And I'll say, as I'm carrying that identity and navigating this world and my clinical care, as you noted, I'm a family physician, and I have some leadership roles within my organization, is I... I find that this identity interacts, sometimes conflicts with people's understanding of how I'm supposed to be. Whether that is the idea of model minority, and I think your listeners have probably heard a little bit about that, about Asian Americans are expected to excel. Or I'm a dark South Indian, so forms of racism because of my dark skin that sometimes comes through in interactions. But my journey has been, as a family physician, how do I care for the communities that I'm part of? Not just the one-on-one patients that I'm taking care of, but the communities that I'm taking care of, which I feel is my obligation. And in order to do that, I realized, even though seeing patients almost like, I don't know, a treadmill, people have a lot of metaphors for this feeling of going from room to room, uh, that's my life, seeing patient to patient. Losing that cultural understanding of the patient that I'm taking care of, but specifically the cultural understanding in this local community. And I found that I had to work a lot harder to understand that part of care because my visits were truncated with 15 to 20 minutes and solely focused on problems. This meant that I had to build relationships with the community. And then you also mentioned I'm a podcaster. I host Healthcare for Humans podcast. It was a way for me to amplify the voices of the community, going out to the community, asking specifically, what does it mean to care for you? And then making that available for everyone in in the nation, the world, uh, what it means to care for Native Hawaiians, what it means to take care of Pacific Islanders, and bypassing the sense of... uh, an academic researcher studying a community. And I'll leave it at that. (laughs) Before you and I started recording, I commented that you've probably seen some really painful examples of when we get it wrong. And one of the points you made was oftentimes we as practitioners never find out because it's, I mean, the person may simply not come back and then it would be very rare for that. I mean, potentially they could fill out that random survey that they get in their email or the mail, and maybe it's it's passed on to us. But this idea that we can be continually creating unsafe environments without a real checks and balance to tell us that that's happening. Can you start by kind of framing some examples of 
this is what we're trying to avoid. Like this is what's at stake here to understand kind of the framework for discussing cultural safety. I think it's helpful to lay the foundation with some definitions, Beth. And I'd like to ask you a question about what you've learned about cultural competence and what was your training like when you went through school? Uh, Good question. Um, My training was a big book with a brown cover and white text. I can still picture it. I had one class in my master's program, so what, three units, and we, will say every week, went through one group of people and checked that box, <laughs> and went through yeah. another group of people and checked that box, and, and that was it. Um, and that's not, I think, unusual. Granted, this has been now more than a decade, so this, you know, this was in some before times, um, where there's continual growth on this issue. This idea of cultural competence, quote unquote, does not translate <laughs> from a book to looking at an assessment and imagining somebody's cultural background and going, okay, so this is what I'm going to assume about them. And when they say this, you know, they, they talk about an altar, that's what that means. You know, that I think the illusion of cultural competence is assuming that we can make assumptions and that they would be accurate. And within that framework, where the danger exists is when we assume that we're right. Uh, But so my personal experience with it is how much I continue to learn how much I am aware of blind spots I didn't even know I had. And I stumble into them and go, oh, did that happen? How did I miss this entire chapter of history? Uh, and so I, I don't think I'll ever be competent. <laughs> At least that's where I've come to. So to answer your question, my education started as a book and this kind of academic focus of checking some boxes to say that I had considered how religion may impact folks from Latin America, let's say. And as it's evolved professionally, I continue to realize how much I don't know. Thanks, Beth. I think that is probably many people's experiences, people who are listening to this episode right now. I don't want to dismiss the whole idea of having a basic understanding of culture because it is important. You need to know that there's a large influence of Catholicism in many Latin American countries. So religion is an important part of that identity. But what you were talking about, you mentioned a lot of the pitfalls pretty directly from your own experience. For example, the idea that you could become, quote unquote, competent in any culture. I'm Indian. As I said, I'm a South Indian from Tamil Nadu. If you ask me about Punjabi culture, which is a region in North India, I'll have no idea what to tell you about it. Like, I don't know. I don't know what they eat. I don't know how they celebrate important holidays. There's so many parts of culture that we collapse into a singular profile. That textbook that you're talking about in a few pages, the idea that you can cover an entire country or entire region, the Asian American identity is a fool's errand in many ways. So the idea of saying that you can become competent misleads many people because you have that checkbox feeling. Okay, I covered India, check. I covered Mexico, check. So cultural competence sometimes leads us down that road. So we want to avoid that. There's two other problematic parts of it. One is stereotypes, which you just mentioned, where you're like, oh, I'm competent about it. So you must be feeling this. I read about people like you, right, before being direct. And the last is the sense of othering. I mentioned this earlier as well, where you're normal, Beth, and you're studying these different cultures who are different, who have some strange beliefs and values, But maybe if you understand a little bit, now we can talk about DSM-5 diagnosis and how to get them the treatment they need to help them feel better. People aren't doing this intentionally, but it comes with that paradigm of cultural competence and how we're taught it. That field has definitely evolved, as you just mentioned. We've talked about cultural humility. People have probably heard about that term. But still, the education is, I'll say, subpar to how much we need to know to care for our patients and clients. 
because I just saw this graphic recently where, at least in medical school, our curriculum hasn't changed since the 60s. We still learn about the Krebs cycle, which is a cycle in enzymes and cells. And we don't talk about all the systems that we're part of now. We don't talk about different cultures and the nuanced understanding of it. It's often an elective. So it's helpful for us to prioritize learning about cultures because we see and learn from people from all different backgrounds and identities. I'll re revisit the idea of cultural humility. The cultural humility is helpful because it avoids this idea of competence and focuses on your own values. Hey, I bring values and beliefs into this encounter. So I'm going to reflect on my own values and beliefs and understanding that will help me take care of the person in front of me, which is important. The terminology that I use sometimes interchangeable with cultural humility because that's the term many people use, but I try to focus on cultural safety to bring in this other understanding of power because we often think of culture as patterns a pattern of values, a pattern of beliefs, a pattern of pattern of being. People, how they dress, how they celebrate, what food they eat. The idea of power is actually each culture also holds historical and structural factors that inform how they came to be. And the power means there's a power in the room between you and the patient or client that you're talking to. The power, there's power in the community between me as a clinician and them, when however they came to the US or North America, whether they're immigration, refugee, asylum seeker, and there's historical dynamics of power that informs how they come to view you and will they trust you or not. And it's hard to divorce that from individual interactions, although a lot of our medical paradigm is thinking hey, that's so out of our control. All we can do is this conversation. And there's some truth to that, but I think it's upon all of us or it's important for all of us to understand these historical and structural factors to care for clients and patients better. You were likely observing this. And a point you made before we started recording was that so many of us operate independently. So we walk into a room or now these days we go virtual <laughs> and talk with somebody without much observation every once in a while. Maybe we have a supervisor. Some of us were trained in an environment where we had the one-way mirror kind of opportunity, but by and large, we're operating independently without someone saying, are you aware that you did this thing? When we're looking at the deficits of cultural safety, cultural humility for practitioners, what are the consequences? You've mentioned, you know, people not coming back, but what does that mean practically when we walk into a room and potentially unknowingly create an environment that isn't safe? I like to use this example a lot because it resonates with people and connects a lot of the concepts that we just talked about. I'm in the West Coast and I take care of a lot of Native Hawaiians. And you may or may not have read about a profile about Native Hawaiians, wherever you learned it, about hula dancing. You may have been to Hawaii. You have a general sense of culture. You probably heard the terms aloha. I had Dr. Miley Tauli'i uh, in episode two and three in the podcast. And what she said was the most important for the community. One of the most important parts was how we greet and acknowledge their identity. Because she said, you know what we want people to really stop doing is always talking about their vacation to us when we say we're Native Hawaiian. Because we go into a room in a place of vulnerability, needing help. We bring up our identity and somebody says, hey, I was just in vacation in Hawaii. This is where I was, where are you from? I'm going to pause there because this is what I want to unpack. One is I'm going to be generous to the person bringing up Hawaii. I, I probably did that. I didn't learn it wasn't okay to do it because I'm trying to look for ways to connect with the person in front of me. And this identity they're bringing up, I feel like I could connect to a place I was just there, which I, I'm not, it's not always true. I haven't gone to Somalia or Ethiopia. And I understand a little bit of the culture, so I want to let them know they can trust me. 
but we're going to shift perspective to the client or patient. Now we're going to bring in the historical and structural factors. They came to this land because they were kicked out of their land, this idea of land displacement, because it became too expensive because of tourism. And they, they're here, oftentimes they can't visit their own family. So that is informing their mental health. They're feeling isolated. They're feeling disconnected from their land. And then here you are, the first thing you talk about is your vacation to Hawaii. And what that tells them is, hey, you don't actually get me at all, do you? Like you have no idea. We don't know how that encounter is gonna go. That moment, although it was a short moment or a small moment, it has actively reduced the amount of trust you can build. So likely they're not gonna come back, but more than that, it's gonna inform future healthcare encounters for them. And we're like, no, I've been to therapy once, you know, that wasn't for me. And I hear that a lot. They gave up because they had a bad experience and it's hard to get them to trust that process again. And they start to distrust healthcare systems overall. Hey, it's not for me. They don't really understand us or me. And it takes a lot of work to build trust. We talk about trust a lot. And it's incredible how these small moments can demonstrate how much you really understand or know about the community. And as I said, I was probably doing it too until I talked to somebody from the community who's a community leader and said, this is what's happening and I want you to stop doing it. And I don't do that. And the lesson I like to highlight is also like, not that you can never talk about your vacation to Hawaii. It is now that you know about these factors, when you're talking to a client or patient, say, hey, I know uh, that many people miss Hawaii. You said you're from Hawaii. Have you been back there recently? Do you have family there? Do you visit them? And they could say, yeah, I go there every month. I'm actually going there in a few weeks. And then it may be more appropriate for you to bring up your connection to their land. But if they say they've been missing it, no, it's really hard to get there and go there, then you can change the conversation. You don't have to bring up your vacation to Hawaii and say, hey, I know that's important to many people. Is it important to you? So there's a sense of curiosity and the conversation changes and it helps people feel understood, heard and seen. And that does the opposite of building trust and then coming back to you and then actually building a therapeutic relationship. When talking about trust, you mentioned power dynamics and our awareness of how power is interacting in the room. You as a physician are sometimes in a position to make recommendations, clinicians, mental health clinicians, maybe as well, depending on the scope of their work. When a client or patient feels like they can't trust us, what's the likelihood of them following through on those recommendations? It's difficult because because of that power dynamic, sometimes they won't let you know if they're not going to follow the recommendations. And I'll, I'll say from a personal example, from my personal experience, I like to use just my own community because that's who I can speak to, although I've heard variations of this in other communities, is if my parent or grandparent goes to the doctor, the doctor held so much power and authority, if they tell you to do something, you say yes. You don't challenge it, even if it's not practical for your life, even if you're not going to end up doing it. Because who are you to challenge their authority? This person who's gone, to so, gone through so much education and you paid money to go there, so you're going to nod your head and say yes. And then who knows if you're actually going to follow through. For me, there's I've had different experiences and I don't think I've figure out the exact one thing you can do because it is personalized is I leave room for being challenged. So I'll use another community to see what this approach could look like. So Dr. Ahmed, who is talking about the Somali community in my podcast talks about the specific supplement that the community takes called habit soda. And now that I know that many people in the community take it, one, I'm not going to assume everybody's taking it and say, hey, you're taking it, stop taking it. I actually bring in that knowledge to build trust and let people know that they may not follow my recommendation. So they come to me, let's say, with uh, some kind of problem, whether it's pain, anxiety, and they talk about the typical medical paradigm. For anxiety, let's say we're talking about different modalities of therapy, and I'm talking to many therapists, you're probably more well-versed well at this. Um, 
in actually helping people work through it. But I present the options, I talk about medications, and then I say, you know, I also know in the Somali community, a lot of people say habit soda, take habit soda a lot. Are you taking that? I've heard for some people it helps. And that leaves an opening for them to respond because they know, hey, this doctor isn't going to think I'm quote unquote crazy or dismiss what I think is going to work in my body. And they could say, hey, I'm taking habit soda and I don't know, I think it helps, but I'm not sure, which has happened to me before. And I say, okay, you can keep trying that, but here are the other options. And I would recommend these. How about we check in in two weeks and you tell me if your current plan is working for you. Uh, if not, let's try the ones, the the other other recommendations or therapeutic modalities we typically use in Western healthcare. Does that sound okay to you? So there's a constant sense of curiosity and invitation to be part of this conversation compared to what I was typically taught. Hey, you have anxiety, you're coming in for a recommendation. Here's the three things you're going to do. I'm going to prescribe, I'm going to refer. And let's make, why don't you make the follow-up with me in two months and see how things are going. And it changes the dynamic and conversations at dance, right? We're trying to sense where everybody is and what each other's understanding of what we're saying is. I'm trying to meet them where they're at. So trying to do that more intentionally and explicitly. As we're talking about this, you're mentioning really explicit examples in the language we use. Can we zoom out for a moment and talk about cues coming from the environment about safety? There have been a number of medical organizations who have opened the door for hanging pride flags in their offices, for example. I am thinking of a practitioner that I saw within the last few years, and uh, this person was wearing a bracelet that had an insignia on it that many would consider divisive. And some would absolutely consider the pride flag divisive. So I want to acknowledge that. Um, But just that symbol on that practitioner's bracelet made me go, I don't feel safe here and I'm not going to come back. (laughs) Can we talk about those symbols and icons and the messages that they're sending to people? Because There's this idea of us as a practitioner wanting to represent what we believe and be open about that. And then there's also the risk that just by doing that, we're creating an environment where somebody doesn't feel safe without even uttering a word. That's a good question. I love examples. So I'm going to keep using examples uh, and then I'll answer your question directly too. I had a question about a surgeon who was not religious and a patient who was having surgery was Catholic and really wanted the whole team to pray for her before she went to surgery. And the surgeon said, you know what? I didn't feel comfortable doing that. Like how important is it for me to dismiss my own feelings to honor this person's culture and beliefs? Cause they really want to pray, but I'm, I really don't believe in God and I don't want to, be uncomfortable and succumb to their wishes. And there was an undercurrent of this consumer culture, right? We're doing everything for patients and we're not honoring our own distress as providers or clinicians, because that's true in our healthcare system. There's manifestations of that. I'm using that example because it demonstrates the idea of power because the surgeon has a lot of power in that situation because they do the surgery a lot. For the patient, this is probably the biggest moment of their life and they want this to happen. So we need to be able to understand that power dynamic and the contextual factors and be able to let go of that power to give this person, again, once in a lifetime, maybe experience something they need so they have a healing experience. So going back to your question about cues, symbols, and what's on the walls. We talk about paintings a lot, what photos are in the walls, and how your clinic or is decorated or shows support. Many people that you take care of now have a now have a good understanding of why they're suffering. It's not just that they cannot get the one-on-one visit with you to get cognitive behavior therapy. 
It's because of the historical harm of slavery and the intergenerational trauma, and their whole family is affected. And they also understand that systems need to change to support them better. And I think we do too. Many patients do, but we do too, because that is part of the moral injury we talk about a lot. We're trying to do our best work with the best tools we have, and we continue to see people suffering because of immigration law or for DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, with an executive order say, hey, you don't belong here. We're going to kick you out of the country. And you as a therapist or me as a doctor can't do anything, but that is the source of whatever mental health illness they're going through. In order to support them in that advocacy, it's important to show explicit signs and cues in your office and what you're wearing to support what they're going through. And yes, it can be divisive, as you're saying, quote unquote, but my goal is to support the people that I'm caring for. And if the people that I'm caring for need that sense of solidarity with them, I'm willing to do that. And yes, my values and beliefs are important, but ultimately I'm here to heal my clients and my communities. And there's, there's a place for me to share my own beliefs and values as well, but that's going to be my focus. So I take care of a lot of people who have gender fluid identity. So yes, I want LGBTQI flags because I want them to know, Hey, I'm, I will advocate for you. I want you to feel well, and I'm going to support you in that journey. Or I have patients who are undocumented and are, um, hold DACA. So I'm going to say, I know what the core problem of your anxiety and suffering is. I know I want you to refer to therapy, but you keep telling me, you know, what I really want is some kind of stable ground. I've been here all my life as a DACA recipient and every presidency, I feel like I'm not sure what's going to happen in my life. I'm going to say, I support you. I'm going to do whatever I can explicitly, but also in my clinic to support you in this journey because you're coming to me and that is my role and obligation. And you can interpret that and say, hey, what if, what if people don't support DACA? What about the immigration debate? I'm not sure. Again, I'm just anchoring onto this patient in my community. And there's a lot of people from that community that I care for. And I want to support them. Thank you for addressing that so directly. I was having a conversation recently with a professional who specializes in working with the queer community and kink. And we were having a conversation about practitioner safety. You know, what happens when we identify speaking as somebody who works almost exclusively with the queer community? It's all over my website. <laughs> you don't need to look hard to find that. <laughs> the, yeah. the rainbows are behind me as we interview. Um, so this idea of what we're putting out into the world and how people are receiving it, considering these symbols, considering as you said, the paintings on the walls and the messages that they're sending, you know, seeing an increase in representation on a brochure of mixed families. I'm in a mixed family. It's nice to see parents that may have different shades of skin from their children. That's something that matters to me. That's something that matters to a lot of people. And our consideration about these symbols and the messages that they're sending and I'm still thinking about that practitioner with that blasted bracelet because it really just made me so uncomfortable. Uh, and I didn't go back. Uh, and I, I would assume that he did that because it was his way, not only of expressing his values, but probably signaling to other prospective patients, you're allowed to have this belief and it's safe with me and we can talk about that thing. But it simultaneously communicated a lack of safety for me. Do we as practitioners really need to stop? <laughs> like you you mentioned dress, like how we are dressing. Can you speak about that? Like really stop and think deliberately about the nonverbal messages we're sending to people. I think it's important. And with, with this work, there's no right answer. I think some people listen to all this and want to make everything more sterile. Hey, all white walls, you won't know any beliefs or values. You're coming in here. We're going to just do therapy. We won't talk about any of that political thing, anything that's controversial. And I think that does injustice to our patients. Because as I said, people know what's the root cause of their suffering. And yes, I think you could do that and 
maybe that is the option for you because this space is really difficult. And I, as you said, I think there's room for everybody to practice how they want. I mean, we need more therapists overall, right? We need more therapists, especially therapists of color. So there needs to be more space for people because I want people to get the mental health they deserve. But if your own identity matches with your passion for the community and you want to express that, you should be able to. So if that person was making you feel unsafe, it's clear maybe they're not making it safe for you because that is not their focus or community and you do need a different person to go to. And I think that's okay. Um, and I, I think I understand your idea of Hey, like I'm expressing however I want to express myself. You should be free to as well. But in our national dialogue, I don't think that's how expressions have been understood. It's more of I'm saying this, which means it's going to contradict with your belief. And only one of us, one of us is right. So I don't think that assumption that, hey, if I express my values and beliefs, you'll be free to necessarily hold ground, at least in our current dialogue there's probably a lot more work to be done there. I appreciate you making that point. It is a very complicated time to be <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Not that there's ever been a simple time, um, but it is a really complicated kind of twilight zone moment in history. Um, cultural safety. You use this phrase. Where does this come from? <laughs> <laughs> That's... I don't create things except podcasts. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, really, the like a core philosophy of my work because I am I'm Indian American, as I said. I'm fairly privileged, I and mean, the Indian identity is complex, and there's people in different socioeconomic conditions. But I'm a doctor. My parents are doctors, and I'm a male too. So there's a lot of positions of privilege that I hold. So part of my work is amplifying other people's voices and going out to the community rather than me creating something from my understanding. Because as I said, there's a sense of othering where I'm studying other people and coming up with concepts. So the idea of cultural safety that I really like is it was created by the Maori population in New Zealand. Maori population is the indigenous population in New Zealand. And both New Zealand and Canada actually have a little have done a lot of work around indigenous tribes and populations and how to undo the harm that we've done for the original inhabitants of the land. So the Maori population in New Zealand have some of the worst outcomes in that country for all health conditions. And their community, specifically the nursing community, came up with this idea of cultural safety to also acknowledge the power dynamic because we were so stuck in this cultural competence idea of like, hey, you just need to know how we dance and what food we eat, and then you can care for us. They said, no, like you need to understand the decimation and the genocide of our population. And now there needs to be truth and reconciliation. And we need to think about how to design our healthcare systems to really care for us after everything we've experienced. And I think in this podcast, you talk about intergenerational trauma a lot. It's not just individual level, it's community and family level, especially with indigenous folks and that high rate of alcohol, alcoholism in that community. And you can, you know, unpack that and you get down to all the trauma and what people have witnessed. So what does it mean to care for them? So this idea of power being explicitly called out and then designing systems that way. I think it's been powerful for that community. So I want to acknowledge it was specifically created around uh, the indigenous community, but I think it's helpful for all diverse communities conceptually. So we incorporate that in our understanding. The goal in labeling cultural safety, looking at that particular group of healthcare providers in New Zealand for an indigenous population, this is where I'm going to get very academic, so I apologize in advance. The idea there was to improve outcomes. There's probably differing understandings of what health means, depending on who you're talking to. But yes, improve health outcomes. And if you talk to the healthcare system, they'll say improve breast cancer screening, improve cervical cancer screening, improve referral to mental health, improve diagnosis of anxiety and depression, and appropriate screenings every three months, because those are all metrics that we follow. 
But if you ask the community what they want, they'll say, we want to have a better sense of purpose, want to experience more joy, and have a sense of belonging. I, I think it's actually true for all of us, but we make it fit into our current paradigm. So sometimes there's a gap between that understanding. And if you ask them what purpose, belonging, and joy meant to your community, they're going to say something different than, oh, I want to be screened for anxiety every three months with a questionnaire, right? Like, that is not what they're going to tell you. Said nobody ever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's the metric we follow, right? Hey, like, yeah. I screen everybody, this whole community every three months, so I can catch anxiety early. They're like, no, that's not what we want. That's such a good point. And as we're having this conversation, I'm aware there are so many other conversations that are being had and that need to be had in these systemic issues that have gotten us here. You know, as as you said, we walk into a room and in today's medical landscape in North America, typically it's boom, 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 boom. <laughs> like one to the next, you're eight minutes late, go, 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 go. And there are big problems in that system, obviously. And we can't fix all of them. So then what do we as practitioners do within that paradigm to work with what we have and how much all of us value being listened to, being seen? You've touched upon historical and structural factors that can help inform our culturally safe practices. Can you speak more on that as we're considering what are we doing, particularly for individuals who have immigrated, who have refugee status, what are we doing to create cultural safety for them? We talked about a few parts of this. One is acknowledging the structural causes of their suffering, with, that could be explicit statements of advocacy or signs in your clinic room or what you wear in your clothes. I think those are all important. There's also specific things we can do to not actively dismiss people's culture. And this is going to be very practical because in the last few years, people have struggled with this question of how do you ask somebody what their identity is, Beth? So let's say you have no idea. Somebody comes in with, as you said, there's people are multiracial now. They hold different identities. So Beth, I make an appointment with you and you don't know what I am. How do you figure out what my what identities that I hold close to myself. <laughs> Check. Um, yeah. Check. Okay, I yeah. look at that. And, and we have actually some great episodes that talk about the messages we're sending in our intake paperwork. Are we giving people a limited number of options to choose from when we say gender identity? Or are we leaving a blank where people can write in what is best for them? Um, but so please take a listen to those other episodes. There are some really good ones. Um, but beyond intake paperwork, I would say my answer is curiosity. Can you tell me more about that? I noticed you said here that um, your family hails from Central America. Can you tell me more about that and kind of your story? What's the right answer, Raj? <laughs> I never give right answers. I just give approaches. <laughs> and then you can tell me if there's a better way. But I'll say what I hear a lot is actually, hey, I'm afraid to ask this person about their identity because I just took a module that says we shouldn't ask, what are you? <laughs> because actually, the manifestation of your curiosity, Beth, sometimes comes at the expense <laughs> of my well-being. That's, that's a message that sometimes can be taken away from that dialogue because in the last few years i think people are, have been more vocal about this sense of people questioning who they are and their color of their skin i'll say in my personal experience i can look ambiguous because i'm a dark-skinned indian sometimes i look east african sometimes i do look black as in african-american so people are wondering what i am so they ask me, where are you from? Right? That question that people push back against, because like, hey, like I was born in India, so I could say that for many people who grew up here, I'm like, well, I don't know, I'm from US, San Francisco, <laughs> right? And then people are like, well, where are you from? <laughs> right? Like nobody <laughs> like from from, <laughs> right? Like that sense, like we're we don't want to go down that path. So 
to something that seems easy, which is, hey, lead with curiosity. You have to be intentional of setting the context up that you're not doing it for your own curiosity because I want to put you in a box so the world makes sense to me. Are you black or white? Are you Indian? Are you not Indian? What country are you from Africa? Because one, there's always exceptions. I talked to the indigenous, I talked to somebody uh, named Toy Pa, who's from the Chong community in Vietnam, which is an indigenous group. She was like, well, people always try to ask me where I'm from. I'm I'm from Vietnam, but, you know, my identity is Cham. I'm an indigenous tribe. I don't have a land. But people don't seem to understand, like, there can be people without land in the world. And it's really hard to communicate. So there are cases like that. But also, like, I don't, I'm not here to satisfy your curiosity. So there is some context to even that question of, hey, I really want to care for you in the way that you want to. Does your cultural identity inform the care that we're going to give? For example, I know you in the intake forum that you said that you were Indian. Tell me about your uh, connection to India and how you feel like that's affecting your health right now. So there's like a curiosity that stems from, I want to care for you better and I want to know you. So I'm asking that question. And it's become more and more important to say that because most of the time people are doing it to satisfy their own curiosity. And they're going to come in with that baggage into baggage burden into our visit. So even if that's not why you're saying it and you do it all the time, we just have to understand that. And that comes into this idea of culturally safe care because you're acknowledging actually this person's experience is... uh, varied and multifactored uh, regarding their identity outside of this clinic room. You brought up a point that I think is really important to acknowledge, which is sometimes we learn by what not to do. So you brought up the notorious example of, but like, where are you from? Or (laughs) what are you? Many of us have done it. We do things until we know better. What are better ways, particularly for the average cis, straight, white therapist to ask those questions in ways that are culturally safe instead of putting somebody in a box? It probably varies according to community. So it's hard to have one example. That's pretty part of my journey because we, as medical practitioners, want one answer. And culture defies that in so many ways because it can be contradictory and cultural identity is just one part of somebody's identity i talk about identity a lot too because we we all hold individual identities that i'm raj you know that is my identity i had this physical journey in life i have a cultural identity which is i'm indian american and then i have this universal identity that i also experience love joy fear sadness like everybody else does the manifestation of that could be different, but I have those feelings. So each community member that you meet has an intricate, I'll say, tapestry of those identities and is presenting to you in a specific way. So that question of like, how do you approach a person culturally safe? You you have to just be intentional, specific, and curious, as you noted. And on top of that, part of my journey is been connecting with the community outside of the room. For example, hey, I've taken care of a lot of Native Hawaiians. I wonder if there is a community group or community leader that I can talk to and build relationships with that can help me care for this community better. And I'll say after talking to somebody for an hour or two in that community, we become friends. And sometimes they tell me, hey, Raj, I'm also noticing this. Like, does your clinic or providers know about this problem and are you all talking about it i was like i don't know i don't i don't think i've thought about it and then i can bring it up or educate my colleagues so this idea of building relationships with communities is important and even more important because i think we all have become a little insular from our own communities and we talk about social isolation and loneliness a lot and it's this is another manifestation of that epidemic so if you're in a clinic and you have a specific demographic or culture that you're taking care of, is there a community center close to you 
who's in that community center? Are they open to seeing you? Have you ever visited? Do you know anybody there? And did they tell you about like what it means to ask them about their identity and what's a good way to do it? You bring up a point that highlights big problems. And I'm thinking of my first internship. Here I am, petite, young, white woman, handed some keys, told how to access the electronic health record. Somebody said, you know, here's your password. And then they said, now go see your clients. And that was the extent of training that I got, with the exception of that round book with the white text from that one class that was supposed to teach me everything I needed to know about cultural diversity. Um, But that was the extent of my training working with an entirely different demographic than I am. And the risk for me is not very high (laughs) to not know things about their cultures. The risk for them, as I think back on those moments, there was no training. Nobody said, hey, the majority of our clients have immigrated from these select countries. Let's talk about what's happened. Let's talk about their involvement in the foster system. Let's talk about the intricacies of getting jumped into gangs in Los Angeles. I mean, just that. I remember like peeling back these layers of things that I had never been taught, never been exposed to. And the only reason that happened was not because there was any kind of system that was saying, hey, Beth, here's education on this because you come from a very different world than the folks that you're serving right now. It was out of necessity that I went, oh my God, they're using words I don't understand. (laughs) And like there are these things that I really need to understand and I have no concept of, but it again shines a light on the problem within the systems that we really for so long have viewed cultural diversity as that checkbox. It's like, okay, I did the thing. I got the extra continuing ed credit. Here, it's right here. I did it with this doctor named Dr. Raj. (laughs) Like, I've done the thing. (laughs) Um, Checkbox. But the additional, again, deliberateness that you're bringing to the equation of like, what are we doing? If the system can't support us, then what is the additional homework we as practitioners need to be doing if we're not getting that training ourselves? Are we seeking it? Are we creating opportunities to connect with that community instead of just going, well, no one told me how to do it. So meh. Yeah, exactly. And I want to highlight it. This doesn't, for me at least, feel like homework or a lecture or a CME that I have to attend. As I said, I'm building relationships with the community. And that in itself is meaningful of understanding somebody else's plight in this world in my community and i think that makes me a better person a father it's also you know beth we're probably thinking about this too of like how do i create my create my children sorry educate (laughs) my children (laughs) we do how do we mold them (laughs) yeah how do we but like how do i educate my child that's growing up in a privileged life of his connection to the community of what's important in this life and what I want him to focus on as he grows up. And if I'm not modeling that, and this is true for all parents, right? We try to be like, create educational quote unquote lessons, not educational lessons. We'll listen to Dr. Becky's podcast. I don't know if anybody knows Dr. Becky, Uh, but there's specific things we try to teach them, but it's always like, do as I say, not as I do, which never works. <laughs> They're always looking at you. You're on your phone all the time. They're going to say it's okay to be on your phone and not pay attention. <laughs> so ultimately, it's like, how am I leading my life and how can I be a role model for my children? And I think that informs some of that my work too, of how do I feel better connected to the community and support my community to heal and that big three that I talked about, achieve purpose, belonging, and joy that we're all seeking. I'll say there's also a a selfish part of this work, which is I am a family physician and I see patients, you know, mostly through one-on-one consultations, as many people in your audience do. And I've had more moments of connection. I'm always looking for connection and I've had more moments of connection 
because of doing this work. And it's often very small things because the bar is so low and expecting us to know anything about people's community. So for example, I built a relationship with the Ethiopian community. You know, I did an episode, that was one of my first episodes talking about how do I care for the Ethiopian community. And then at the end of the year last year, I, I had learned that their calendar was significantly different, that they had Christmas for a lot longer or a different time than our New Year's. I didn't know the specifics. I didn't know the specific dates. But I was caring for somebody from the Ethiopian community. And, uh, you know, and like during New Year's, everybody's saying Happy New Year's for like four weeks afterwards. Nobody knows when to stop. Uh, and I'm sure they were doing that to that patient, too. And I said, hey, I actually know it's your Christmas. How's your Christmas been? They're like, oh, you know, it's our Christmas. Let me tell you about this thing that's happening because they were looking for opening and it was clear nobody in their interactions had any clue of it. So one, it built trust with me because I did some work on my own to learn about their community because 24 seven, they're trying to see how they can fit into North American culture, mostly. How do I not speak as much of an accent? With How do I speak in a way that's clear without an accent that people keep saying I have? How do I understand what Americans eat and how do I communicate in a quote unquote professional way. You could talk about all these, all the different ways that people try to fit into our culture or assimilate. You can use different words for that. So this idea of, hey, I'm doing the work to understand your culture created a moment that didn't exist before, especially because it was such contrast with something else. And it, as I said, it's such a small moment, but I had it was interesting for me to learn about it. We were kind of laughing about it, how everybody was telling them Happy New Year's and they were just ignoring it because they're like, nobody knows the Ethiopian calendar is like two years behind. It's very strange. So uh, so we talked about that. And then the, the visit itself felt different too. And Beth, we started this interview with the minute of intentionality. You asked me what my intentions was. We took a moment just breathing. And I think that creates a different start to our conversation. Same thing with our visits to why it seems like small moments, but they can have these rippling effects throughout the encounter. My brain's trying to unpack everything you just said. Um, earlier, you had named some of your identities of privilege really deliberately. We all hold different varieties of privilege. There's so many different versions, we could never label them all, just as there are so many different kinds of marginalization within that. When we are looking at that power differential between client or patient and practitioner, how do you feel about practitioners labeling their own privilege in the context of that meeting? For example, what I'm thinking of, I am in the market for a new primary care doctor. So I asked somebody else, you know, who do you recommend? And they said, oh, Dr. So-and-so, he's great. And my brain latched right onto the pronoun right there. So here I am, a woman going, he? Because my brain is automatically is pulling up past experiences and going, here's where I felt like that male doctor wasn't listening. And then I'm imagining, let's pretend I do see this new practitioner. And I'm just thinking to myself, what would it be like if he's like, how, how is it to see me? You know, you're a woman, I'm a man. What that, what is that like for you? How do you feel about practitioners kind of just owning that difference of saying like, yeah, like I have all these fancy pieces of paper on the wall. Like, what's it like to come in here and talk about your trauma? <laughs> There's so art to it. And a skill to bringing up that power differential because it can feel awkward. Like, but you come to see me, I'm a male, I'm like, hey, like, the patriarchy is really bad, huh? And you chose me as doctor. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? And then like, I'm like, yes. yes, <laughs> yeah, yes. But there might, but I know you now, so maybe we'll say that, right? So I, <laughs> I know you probably had a lot of bad encounters with male providers. Uh, and you know, I don't want to contribute to that distress with male providers if you end up choosing me. So I want you to feel safe to say, like, 
Raj. <laughs> you know, I don't, I can't like make specific personalized recommendations. So, you know, most people, I don't say call me Raj, but Beth, like, you know, it sounds like you're bringing this sense of just, you don't, you don't know if you can trust me. Feel free to call me Dr. Sundar, but you can call me Raj if you're like, hey, like, this didn't sit well with me and I don't want you to do this to me again or other women that you're taking care of. And if you feel comfortable with that, just say it. And uh, it's not going to change the way I care for you, but I really want to care for you in the best way possible with understanding that you probably or you vocalized some bad experience before. Same thing with culture, right? There's like more sense of <laughs> I have to do more for you to trust me and the, you know, I'm not supposed to need external validation to know that I'm a good doctor, Beth, but it's so hard not to need external validation. Is that when Somali women or women from traditionally Muslim cultures choose to stick with me as their OB provider at their first visit, it says a lot because we have a lot of female providers in our clinic, is that I am being open curious and allowing them to feel comfortable in that space. So I look even for those unsaid cues or like, hey, like are people disproportionately not choosing me? Like whenever people call in to make an appointment, I know it's always happening. Like if especially if you're pregnant, they're looking for female providers and we respect that choice. Sometimes I see them once or sometimes they don't care, but there's always a sense of hesitation. Um, for women or female presenting people who are going through labor or pregnant. And I know my job is to help them feel as comfortable and trust me because I also understand these historical structural causes of these systems that led you to distress this recommendation that your friend provided. That was a long-winded answer. <laughs> Just me being aware changes some of how I treat you in hopefully a positive way, not a negative way, because I know it has, it has happened negatively before. Well, I think it's such a perfect example that, that I imagine all of us can call upon, again, regardless of privilege or marginalized status in different ways of the times that we felt like somebody wasn't listening, the time that we felt that someone was talking down to us and disregarding what we were saying and how that shapes us and then zoom out. And it's like, how can we be better as providers to reduce those moments with awareness that we can, we cannot get rid of all of our blind spots all the time. They're going to continue emerging. So then we try to be better for our listeners today where do you think is the best investment of time and energy to grow cultural safety in our practices? The number one recommendation, as I said earlier, is to build relationship with the community. And it's like, how do you build relationships? You reach out to the people in your community. You see if somebody in your own network knows somebody from that community. And if they want to, they may not want to be a spoken person for that community. So you, it takes a lot of work to build that relationship, but just like all relationships, they can um, add so much value to both the care that you're providing and to your life. And I, as I mentioned, I host this podcast called Healthcare for Humans, which specifically around talking to different communities about how to care for them, because I also want that information to be accessible to anybody, um, especially if you're seeing one native Hawaiian patient because there's just a handful of people that's coming there. I don't know if there's a community center for it. What does it mean to care for them? And the historical and structural components of it, you can certainly you know listen to that episode and that may help you think of other ways to connect with that community. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And for folks who are listening and want to learn more about you and your work, what's the best way to do that? You can go to healthcareforhumans.org and all the information will be there, including how to contact me and social media, etc. So again, for our listeners, we've spent the last hour talking with Dr. Raj, sorry, excuse me, Dr. Raj Sundar, and he has been focusing for quite a while on helping us build cultural awareness, create more cultural safety. So I want to invite you to take a listen to the podcast that he's named. Thank you, doctor, for joining us, especially for you. I'm aware 
as an MD coming, talking to me as a licensed marriage and family therapist, I appreciate this dialogue and conscientiousness about the way that power is showing up, not just in medical care, but in mental health care and our need to connect between these different specializations to build upon the services that we're providing. So thank you for helping be a bridge, not just within the medical community, but also for us as mental health professionals. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Beth. Um, thank you for joining us. I really enjoyed this time with you. Yeah, this was fun. <laughs> <laughs> You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.